Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Feast, Fast, and Wine was given by Darren Roundson and is the 10th in our series, The Kingdom. Okay, hey, I um, get the great privilege of reviewing the Kingdom of God series that we've been going through. So grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have uh, um, the magic Bible drop. Drop a Bible in your lap, and we will... um, get going on this. So if you really need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to look at a bunch of passages, but what I want to do is just catch everybody up to speed. Some of us um, are new, and we are in the middle of a series, actually kind of in the beginning part of a series called The Kingdom of God, Following Jesus in Times of Chaos. We took a break for Advent and for kind of a worship series we did through the month of January, and now we're diving back in. And there is a lot of kind of framework and foundational stuff that we've talked about that we really need to remember in order to continue in on the series. So I'm going to attempt in about 10 minutes, to, or even less maybe, to review the, the 10 Sundays of, of teachings that we did on the kingdom of God. Are you guys with me? Yeah. If I'm going too fast, um, you're just going to have to put up with it today. My name's Darren. I'm the lead pastor. Bill and I kind of uh, teach off and on together. So here we go. I'm going to jump in. Go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, it starts off with this. In the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Pause right there. Mark starts his gospel with this announcement, and it's this. In the beginning of the gospel, or the good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ means Messiah. The Son of God is a title given to Jesus that has to do with some serious, serious stuff. Mark starts off the gospel by framing his work in the Old Testament. He says, in the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. Go to the slides. Let's just get the slides rolling. I have some slides to help us out. Hopefully this will make it easy for me to remember. Okay, so Mark, the thing about Mark is this. You need to understand that Mark is writing with a lens of the Old Testament. So as he writes the story of Jesus, he has this whole backdrop, this whole framework of knowing that the Old Testament came before his works. Does that make sense? The old comes before the new. So Mark is writing in lieu of the Old Testament, saying that everything that he's going to tell you about Jesus has been kind of prophesied or spoken about, and and Jesus is going to be reinterpreting the Old Testament. So what we have to know is that Mark uses the prophet Isaiah as a way to tell the story of Jesus. Do you guys remember this? And the prophet Isaiah, this is really important, the prophet Isaiah came out during the time that Jerusalem or the Israelites were in exile. So here's a quick history of Israel in two two minutes. Israel starts in Egypt. Do you remember this? There were slaves in Egypt. God says, I'm going to rescue you. With Moses, he rescues them. He takes them to uh, the Mount Sinai. You guys remember what happens at Mount Sinai? God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. God marries Israel. At that point, Israel's goal in life is to be the people of God, representing God on earth as children of light, as as a community of light, um, as a kingdom of priests. You guys remember this as a holy nation? Give me some nods, yes? Okay, so we got that. So that's, uh, you have Egypt, you have Sinai, then you have Jerusalem. God gives uh, Egypt, uh, so I need to slow down for my sake. (laughs) Okay, God gives uh, the Israelites a a, a promised land. He gives them Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they are supposed to represent God on earth. And what do they do? They're disobedient to the commandments. They, They begin to worship false gods. And because of their disobedience, because they're supposed to represent God on earth, and they're not, God says, I'm going to redeem you. So he exiles them. Babylon comes in, 
Do you guys know the Old Testament history? Babylon comes in, destroys the temple in Jerusalem, destroys uh, Jerusalem, and, and, and exiles the Israelites to Babylon, where they once again become slaves to a nation. And it's here where they're remembering the promises of old that the, the prophet Isaiah and other prophets in, uh, called the minor prophets began to prophesy about a time where God would once again redeem Israel like he did when they were in Egypt. But this time it will be a completely new exodus. And this new exodus won't just be a liberation from Babylon, but it will be a liberation from anything that oppresses anyone anywhere. This is Isaiah. So Isaiah is writing this beautiful prophecy, all these, all these beautiful imageries of, of God redeeming Israel once and for all. And it will, it will be marked on that day. Do you remember this? On that day when God does this, it will be marked by, by harmony, by shalom, by peace. It will be marked by, by the resurrection of the dead, by, by everyone giving, getting the spirit of God inside of them. So on that day, God will return Israelites back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and restore all things once and for all. But what happens? In the story, they're in Babylon. They return to Jerusalem. But all of those prophecies, what happened? None of them really come true. So it's as if the, the prophets of old, it, it, they're, they're still kind of waiting for that new exodus to take place. So they're back in Jerusalem, but they're still in a spiritual exile. You guys with me? So, this is the story of the Old Testament. Mark is writing about this in the book of Mark as he writes about Jesus. So, for 430 years, when the Old Testament ends in Malachi, there's 430 years of silence. None of those prophecies really come true. And then Mark starts his gospel in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying this is a continuation of that whole story. This is the fulfillment of what was prophesied back when they were in Babylon. Are you with me? Okay, let's keep going. That was, that was a big one. So that's going to frame the rest of Mark. We, we're, just start at, at we looked at uh, the first passage. The second passage is Jesus is baptized. He's uh, baptized and he's given this identity of affirmed as the beloved son of the father. That, and once he's uh, affirmed, he begins his ministry. He's rushed where he's tempted by uh, the Satan is what it is, and it, the accuser. And there he's tempted for 40 days, reenacting the 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites failed. And Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Um, he, he then continues on in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Jesus uh, gives the kingdom message. The message is that this kingdom, the promised reign of God, is here right now. The sovereign rule of God. Or one could say that the expression of creation, the way it was intended to be in the first place, is here. That which is marked by peace, by harmony, by healing, by wholeness by the Spirit, by the resurrection of the dead, that is a current reality. Repent and believe. Jesus says, this is a present reality. All those who are listening and that will follow me, turn away from your old ways, align yourself with me, and become a participant in that reality. Does that make sense? Am I already confusing you with so much re review? We've got to get this one piece. The kingdom of God is the reign of of God. It's the rule of God. You guys with me? This is, this is what Jesus is all about. This is the, the, the message in a nutshell. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples. He chooses uh, a few of them. And he says, as a rabbi choosing disciples, I believe you can be like me. And, and it, it represents that, that faith really begins with Jesus believing in us. Go to the next one. 
Um, Jesus begins his first day of ministry. He preaches the kingdom message. People are amazed at his authority, and he's immediately opposed by an opposing kingdom, and demons kind of come into the picture, and we're going to see that as a theme, that the only people for the first eight chapters of Mark that really understand who Jesus is are demons. Find that interesting. The people that are supposed to get it don't get it. The disciples don't know who he is until Mark chapter 8. So for the first seven chapters, we see that demons, um, Gentiles, people that shouldn't get it, get Jesus. That's a theme throughout the book of Mark. Um, um, go to the next slide. Then Jesus heals uh, the leper. And, and the big thing about this is Jesus takes the place of the priest in the temple. Okay, do you remember this, this message where a leper didn't just need to be healed. He needed to be announced cleansed to the rest of the Jewish community. Because for a leper, they, were, they weren't just dealing with a sickness. They were dealing with being an outcast of society. They couldn't enjoy fellowship in, in the Jewish temple. They couldn't even uh, congregate or have friends. They were, they were condensed to being on the outskirts of society. They were, they were kicked out. They would have to, to walk around in, in ugly clothes that uh, separated them from everyone else. They would have to yell at the top of their lungs, uh, leper, leper, unclean, unclean, unclean. And so you could just imagine this man who's literally identified as a leper. This is who he is. And Jesus says, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately the guy's healed. And he's reinstated back into the, the fellowship. So what we recognize is that Jesus offers wholeness. And that that wholeness is not just something of 2,000 years ago, but the kingdom of God for us, here and now, is for today. Wholeness is for today. Does that make sense? You with me? Does that get exciting? Is anyone getting pumped on this stuff? Okay, because I get pumped when I see this stuff. All right, Genesis, or Genesis. Let's go to, Gen go to Mark um, chapter 2, the next one. The very next scene is Jesus... Um, healing a paralytic, and this is an incredible story. This man comes down by his friends, lowering him on this mat through this roof. And Jesus, rather than saying, hey, pick, uh, pick up your mat and walk right away, he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. This was outrageous. Only Yahweh can extend forgiveness, and only in a temple through a priest would you ever experience in the sacrificial system some type of extension of grace or forgiveness. Jesus is redefining the symbols of Judaism, saying, I can forgive sins. I have authority not just to heal, but the kingdom has the authority to forgive. Does that make sense? He's, he's creating a lot of enemies in chapter um, 2. Okay, so, the, oh, go to the next one. Sorry, how many of you guys remember the table message right before Thanksgiving? I love this message. Jesus calls the tax collector... Um, he calls a tax collector. A tax collector in the first century would have been seen as a, a traitor. Jesus calls a national traitor, someone who, it, it would be like for us, and forgive me for this parallel, it would be like Jesus calling someone from the Al-Qaeda. That's how serious this would have been. He says, you can be in my inner circle as a disciple. You can become like me. So he calls uh, Levi, who becomes Matthew, um, a tax collector, and out of just this spontaneous overwhelm of joy, Levi throws a party with all of his friends and Jesus is seen in this picture of dining with sinners and tax collectors. And if you were a righteous person in that time, you would never in a million years dine with someone of that class or of that sin because that meant that you accepted them as they are. If you were going to eat a meal with somebody in the first century, and to this day, if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would only eat a meal with somebody that you fully embraced as they are. 
So the kingdom of God, the message for the table is that the kingdom of God is for everyone and anyone. And it meets you where you are, not where you should be. Amen. So the last picture we had of Jesus is him dining with a bunch of sinners. And he's just feasting with a whole bunch of tax collectors. So we pick up in Matthew or Mark. I'm going to get it right one of these days. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Does anybody need a break from that little review? I'm going to take a quick break. Hold on. Um, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. All right. Let's read this together. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came, to, uh, came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then on that day they will have to fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost. And so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh or new wineskins. So Jesus, the picture here is Jesus leaves this feast, this kind of big party, and the immediate response is, how come you're not fasting? So he's questioned about fasting, but here's what I want to do today. I want to attempt to Tarantino the message. Okay, this is for my own sake. For those of you that know Tarantino films, I'm going to Tarantino the message. We're going to start at the end, and we're going to work backwards, okay? You guys with me? I figured I'll mix it up. So get your note, note papers out. Remember these, these types of films. They can be really confusing, but I'm going I'm to attempt to, to, to land somewhere. Um, but we're going to start at the end. So let's do this. Jesus is questioned about fasting. He talks about this wedding thing. And then he gives two parables. And let's read those two parables one more time. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the, a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost, and so are the skins. But, uh, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So here we go. Jesus is giving you a parable. He's questioned about fasting. He talks about this wedding thing. We're going to talk about that. But his landing argument is this. Hey, guys, you don't take new fabric, fabric that's not shrunk it, it, and sew it on to old clothes. It will make a worse tear. It just gets destroyed. It's like somebody giving me a pair of brand new skinny jeans. And me just in love with these jeans right here that I wear every Sunday. And, uh, and there, there's just a big hole. And instead of putting on the new jeans, I, I cut up the jean and try to attach it to these, these old ones. And these ones have been washed a ton of times, so they're not going to shrink anymore. I try to get them to shrink, but they don't. And, um, and, and so I just the point is this. You would never in a million years do that. Um, and then his next illustration is, hey, in the first century, people that really enjoyed wine, um, that knew how to enjoy wine, um, you, you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins because this is what happens. During the fermentation process, the, the old wineskins would actually crack and burst as the fermentation expands the wine. The, 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 the wineskins would crack and burst. So the point of the two illustrations is simply this. You can't put old into the, or you can't put new into the old. If you do, it will end in both being destroyed and unused. 
And Jesus is saying that he is the new patch and he is the new wine. And what he's saying is you can't just attach me to your old structures of religion. You can't just expect that I'll pour into these old vessels or these old ways into Judaism and for it to work out. Jesus is saying that you can't, pour, you can't take him with the old ways of religion, that that will just end in de- devastation and disaster and destruction. What he's saying is he is redefining Judaism. Jesus is redefining religion in the first century and still to this day. Jesus is saying, I change everything. Jesus is saying, I'm not just an accessory to your religious ways. It won't work that way. But the kingdom and myself redefines religion as you know it. That's how it ends. So he says to people later on, you can't... um, Anyway, so that's how it ends. Let's go to the bridegroom. I'm going to attempt this. Are you guys fine with experimentation? Okay. So Jesus says, um, you can't just attach me to your ways of religion. I'm not just an accessory, but I actually will redefine religion, life as you know it. And so let's look at um, the, the one right before this. Let's get, how does he get here? So that's the question. How does Jesus get to that response when asked about fasting? So uh, go up one, one passage to verse 19. So he's questioned about fasting, and his first story is this. The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have a bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Jesus gives them a story. He's questioned about fasting, and he tells them a story about a wedding. Now, let's get some context. A Jewish wedding in the first century, if you were a virgin bride, you would have a seven-day wedding. Your wedding would last for seven days. And if you were a guest, or if you just lived in that village where it was, it was happening, your only responsibility at the wedding was simply to enjoy and participate in the abundance of, of wine, of food, of, of song, of dance, of all the festivities. If you were a rabbi, you would not teach Torah during that week. You would go and simply enjoy in the festival of a wedding. And Jesus is saying, why would you ever in a million years fast in a culture like that? Why would you not consume food when, food when it's designed for you to just have this overabundance of, of, of food, of, of eating, of pleasure, of excitement, of celebration? He's saying, hey, at a wedding you don't fast. But there's two things that Jesus is doing under the surface. And I just want to, this is more of the, the, um, the background again. So his response is, you never fast at a wedding. But here's what Jesus is doing. He refers to himself as the bridegroom. Go to Isaiah 54 real quick. Isaiah 54. I want to explain to you kind of what makes this so offensive. That in one chapter, chapter 2, by Mark chapter 3, Jesus is already being, um, people are, are beginning to conspire against Jesus to kill him because of one chapter in Mark. Go to Isaiah 54. Jesus tells a story of a wedding, and he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And look at what, um, what in the Old Testament, who the bridegroom is. Verse 5. Remember Isaiah, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth, 
when she is cast off, says your God. In Isaiah 54, Yahweh is referred to as the husband of Israel. Go to Ezekiel 16. I just want to paint this picture. This is absolutely provocative. The fact that Jesus uses this illustration will make him um, kind of an outlaw to the Pharisees. They're, they're, they're seeing what he's, he's doing. He's creating this, this thing against him that will inevitably end in his death. Verse, uh, verse 8, I just want to paint this Old Testament picture. All throughout the prophets, uh, Yahweh is referred to as, as the bridegroom. Go to verse 8 of chapter 16. I passed by you again and looked on you. You were at the age of love. I spread the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. In Ezekiel chapter 16, this is uh, Ezekiel writing on behalf of God to Israel, basically saying that with tenderness in his words, that Israel is the bride or the wife of God. Go to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Um, look at verse 16. Hosea is to the right. Let's just look at verse 16. Um, if you remember the message, but it starts off like this. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my, my Baal. On that day refers to the time when, when once and for all God would come back and restore Jerusalem, would restore Israel to himself. And look at the language that's being used by the prophet Hosea. Uh, skip down to verse 19. And, and this is God talking to Israel. And I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and you shall know, know the Lord. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus refers to what's going on when questioned about fasting as a wedding. And then he refers to himself as the bridegroom. Jesus is saying in, in one verse that he is identifying himself as the role only God was intended to fulfill. Jesus is saying, I'm God. And he's not only doing that, but he is then doing and fulfilling the mission that God had with this whole imagery of the wedding. Are you guys with me? So Jesus redefines the expectations of the Jewish community. He's redefining what they expected God to do. He's saying, I am taking that role on here and now in your midst. A wedding. A wedding. So what he's saying is, is there's a party going on, and when this party's happening, you're not supposed to fast, okay? Most of you are, are confused, but I'm attempting to make it confusing until I land. I'm trying. So why does Jesus end with, I redefine these structures, with, hey, there's a wedding going on, and I'm the bridegroom, when he's questioned about fasting? Why does he answer it this way when he's questioned about fasting? So we have to answer this question. What is fasting to a first century Jew? What is fasting to a first century Jew? Let's read this real quick. Verse 18. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What is fasting all about in order for Jesus to answer it the way he did? So someone asks Jesus right after he's partying, at, right after he's enjoying this feast, hey, hey, John the Baptist, his disciples, they fast. And these guys, the Pharisees, um, they fast too. Now remember the Pharisees were these religi- religious elites. They, um, they had a lot of power in, in Jerusalem, even though they were a small sect. They, they were known for separating themselves from the rest, of all, uh, the rest of the Israelites. And they added law after law after law to separate themselves by being holy from everyone else. So they would have been seen by common folks as religious elites. They, they actually, they had it figured out. And same, the same is true with John the Baptist and his disciples. Those were people that were, they had it figured out as well. They were, they were trying really hard to embody this, this message of Jerusalem, this message of the Israelites. So this guy comes to Jesus, sees him eating and his disciples feasting. And he says, hey, why aren't you fasting like these other guys? What is fasting really about for Jesus to answer the way he did? Um, In order to answer that, we need to know what feasts are. So let me give you a quick background. Built into the Jewish system of life, into the calendar system, is this idea of coming together as the people of God and celebrating with festivals and feasts. So the feast or festival, there were, there were three major events during the year that were built around certain types of harvest where the community of God would come together and remember different things. So the first one is Passover. At Passover, Israelites, the, the Jews would come together in Jerusalem. They would, they would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate Passover around the harvest, of uh, the, the barley harvest. And what they would do is they would remind themselves of Exodus. So at Passover, this big feast, it would would represent the fact that they were redeemed and rescued by God and that God was their God and they were his people. So you had Passover. The second major festival was something called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. And 50 days after Passover, the Jews would come back together and they would celebrate God's, um, the first fruits, the harvest. It was around the time of the wheat harvest. And they would bring a tenth of everything they had. They would celebrate with God. Um, They would recognize that God is the provider. But the Pentecost was also a time that represented the the time when, when God brought the Torah down from Mount Sinai and married Israel. So every year, they celebrate Passover and they celebrate Pentecost as a way to remind themselves that they were the people of God and God gave them Torah, the way of life. And they would, they would kind of do a renewal of covenant every year. And the third major festival, and this is important, is the Festival of Tabernacles. And this was a time that the Jews remembered that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then God provided the promised land. So, built into the psyche, built into the rhythms of life, the Jews would commemorate the fact that they were rescued, that God gave them the law, and that God promised them land and gave them the promised land, and they would come to simply say, you are our God, and we are our people. And they did that by celebrating with feasts. And the same is true for fasts. Israel had their temple destroyed by the Babylonians. And fasting four times a year became instituted as a way to commemorate the fact that the temple 
temple was where God dwelt. It was the living, uh, the living place where the living God lived. This is where forgiveness was extended. This is where the sacrificial system happened. This was the, the symbol of religion and the symbol of government. And that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so we read in the Old Testament that the Jewish community would come together four times a year and do public fasts to do this, to remind themselves that Israel was still in exile and that Israel's temple was destroyed and that there would be a day, one day, and on that day, God would come, marry Israel. He would rebuild the temple and Israel would no longer be in exile on that day. So fasting represented the state of Israel, that their temple was destroyed and that they were in exile, separated from God. Go to Zechariah real quick. Zechariah, I want to just make this point. Um, Zechariah chapter 8, just to to show you what's going on, because this is so beautiful. Jesus is so brilliant with what he's doing. Uh, Just look at verse 3 of chapter 8, Zechariah. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts shall be called the holy mountain. Now skip over. This is describing the day that God would come once and for all and redeem Jerusalem, bring Israel out of exile, and, and go down to verse 18. Read what Zechariah says. He says, on that day, basically, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth shall be seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. Therefore, live love, truth, and peace. On that day, fasting will turn to feasting. On that day, your rituals of fasting, of commemorating Israel being in exile, the temple being destroyed, you won't do that anymore because it will be rebuilt. You will no longer be in exile. Israel will be liberated. On that day, your fasts will turn to feasts. Jesus is questioned about fasting and he says to them, There's a party going on. The temple is being rebuilt because I'm the new temple. You don't need to fast anymore because I'm extending the forgiveness, the liberation, not just to Israel, but to everyone. Why on earth would you fast when the bridegroom is here and all you have to do is join the party? Amen? Amen. So Jesus is questioned about fasting and he says, don't you see what's going on? Yahweh is doing what was promised in the Old Testament, what was promised by the prophets of old. He is redeeming you, and you're too busy looking at the rituals, the systems, the religion that has has kept you, that has kept you from seeing God in your midst, that has, has seen liberation at your fingertips, and all you're doing is being concerned with the rituals that you've placed. In other words, you need new wineskins. In other words, I'm going to give you a new garment because the old one doesn't fit anymore. You can't just attach me to the ways of old because I, Jesus, and the message of the kingdom redefines Judaism, redefines life. 
I'm not just part of life. I am life, Jesus says. This has nothing to do with a ritual of of fasting. Jesus will say in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples are are called to fasting. That it's it's a discipline that we do. But what's going on here is Jesus is, is communicating to the nation of Israel that Yahweh is marrying them right now, 2,000 years ago. So the kingdom of God is a kingdom of partying, of celebrating, of recognizing where we are. So, to land, Mark is writing to a group of Christians, and we can't forget this. He's writing to a group of Christians in like 65 A.D., And somehow in the midst of 30-something years, those that are disciples have already forgotten the message of Christ and the kingdom of God. Somehow, I don't know how, 30 years after people seeing the resurrection of Christ, they have forgotten what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we read the book of Mark as a reminder of this is what it takes to be a disciple. And so the same, so what Jesus says to Jerusalem and to the Israelites is still for today. The questions that we bring is how have we allowed our religion, our expectations, our pasts, our hopes, the way we do life to disable us from seeing God in our midst? Think about this. Why do you patch new cloth onto old, clo- old clothes? Why do you do this? All right, to fix it. Now, why wouldn't you want the new garment? Why wouldn't you want new jeans? I think there's two reasons. And this is, go with this if this is helpful. If, uh, take it. If not, throw it away. I think there's two reasons why we want to keep the old and just apply the new to the old. Because one, we don't want to get rid of the old. We don't want to get rid of the, way, the, the thing that has become comfortable, secure, safe. We don't want to open our hands in prayer because that's just a little uncomfortable. That's just for the religious stuff. We don't want to get rid of the old because we're comfortable with it. That's one. The second thing is this. Maybe we think what's new is not going to be good enough. Does that make sense? So how does this this flesh itself out? Well, um, I think a couple things. I wonder how many of us are just trying to attach Jesus to certain aspects of our life rather than saying, God, Jesus, give me a new life. We're trying, to, we're trying to cram him in on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays. But then at work, that's, that's not where Jesus enters in. With our relationship with our roommate or with our, our boyfriend and girlfriend, we're not allowing Jesus to come into that area and say, actually, I'm reigning in that area too. We've allowed ourselves to define the terms that Jesus is Lord. Amen? So this morning, as, as I bring Pete up and the team, as we land, I think we can take this a lot of different ways. I think some of us, we have to simply hand over our old ways. For some of us, that literally is the old Sunday school Jesus. The Jesus we were taught years ago by other people that has defined the way we connect, the way we interact, the way we live, and it's just this compartment in our life versus becoming our life. Jesus says, I'm wrecking all of that. I'm giving you something new. Let's do that this morning. uh, I'm going to close in a time of prayer, and then 
let, let Pete take it away. So why don't we close our eyes? Just wait for a moment. So many of us just try to integrate Jesus into pieces of our life, but he's definitely not the Lord of our finances, the Lord of our work, of our friends, of our dreams, of our hopes. It's like we, we pray that prayer, Lord, have your way with me, but bless what I'm already doing rather than surrendering what he wants to do in us. Why don't we just wait? I'll just open us in the prayer and we'll begin to worship. I cultivate Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from the garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.